Hi there, and welcome to the podcast episode of the television show Stargate SG-1. For the channel, let's review with Layla and you. For additional content on the other review episodes published by this account on a variety of subjects, come visit us in the RSS community where you can find us under the name Let's Review with Layla and You. You can also find us on Instagram under the same name. Here you can find more additional in-depth content, including with every episode and upload of promotional posts accompanying every podcast episode, as well as provide us a place vacation and where we can share and exchange ideas, thoughts, and whatever else you like to share concerning this whole adventure that we're setting out on together. So come meet up with me, myself, and I, and I would love to hear what y'all think. Hope to see you there. back for the review of another Stargate SG-1 episode. Today, we review episode 7 called Cold Lazarus. It was written by Jeffrey F. King, directed by Kenneth J. Garotti, and the original air date was August 29th, 1997. As for always, the episode starts off with an MGM lion roaring. On an exploratory mission of P3X-562, SG-1 comes across a planet of bright yellow sand dunes littered with pits filled with smashed blue crystals, none of which appear to be intact. As I have since discovered, they filmed this on location at the sulfur pits at the Vancouver Wharfs, and for y'all not in the know, sulfur smells like rotten eggs, which I think we all can agree on is not exactly a happy smell. I myself have been to Dalian Turtle Beach in Turkey, famous for its mud baths, and take it from someone who knows that smell takes some getting used to. So, wow. I do have to say I deeply sympathize with the crew that had to film this on location, but I mean, it is a beautiful shot. Kudos, truly. Colonel O'Neill goes off to explore a bit outside the eyesight of the rest of the team, and as he encounters a blue crystal that hasn't been smashed, it blasts him backwards, leaving him unconscious in the sand. In the next shot, we see someone looking down on Colonel O'Neill, and that someone is Colonel O'Neill, as he hears Daniel call out over the radio, saying they have finished their recon and are ready to return to Earth, and he returns home with them. Ah, uh, there's our beloved General George Hammond again, welcoming the SG-1 team back home. The other O'Neill wondrously looks around the gate room, as he is being scanned by someone with a yellow, I think, Geiger counter? Checking for radiation? Apparently, he doesn't detect anything unusual or abnormal, because still, no one appears to be the wiser that this is not R. O'Neill. After the introduction song, we see the team debriefing Hammond about their findings on the planet. And though, yes, we've learned that O'Neill clearly is not a big fan of debriefing. The fact that he is standing in a corner, clearly not engaging in the conversation, doesn't appear to be flagged as uncharacteristic or odd by any of the team members, or even General Hammond. Bit weird. But I mean, the man can seem to resist making a snarky comment or two at every debriefing, I might imagine. So, Jeesh. way to take notice when someone is clearly not feeling like themselves. Next, we see O'Neill's locker is next to Ferretti's, whom I'm guessing is still alive, or at least okay, but no longer part of SG-1 after getting seriously wounded on the last mission to Abydos. Though it's a subtle shout-out, it's nice to know that the dude ain't dead. Although I don't think we ever see or hear from him again. Sorry to disappoint. Spoiler! Taking a trip down memory lane, we've seen that O'Neill, though not really O'Neill, looks at his wedding ring, pictures of his son. He's interrupted by Carter, saying that in a few minutes this becomes the female locker room, so apparently it's not so much as a co-ed locker room, but that there are designated time slots? Okay. She tactfully tries to kick him out, though any and all nuance appears to be lost on this other O'Neill. After O'Neill walks away, and Carter seemingly finally has the locker room now to herself, seeing that this is the female time slot, suddenly here comes Daniel, who 
apparently has not gotten that memo. He tells her that O'Neill is not married, not anymore, and that they separated after the death of their son. Surprisingly, Carter seems to be a little hurt, not knowing that O'Neill was married and had a son. And, I mean, granted, in the last few months, apparently, she already seriously made out with him. Doesn't know the first thing about him. Still, the fact that she gets so butthurt about it, it's a little surprising, though. I mean, you could have just asked the man. And yes, it is a bit interesting, seeing that O'Neill did know about her prior engagement to Hanson. Though you could say that was technically work-related, because they worked at the same command, though not directly under each other, or with each other. But still, he clearly knew those intimate details about her life, and she didn't know shit about his. So on one hand, I can't understand her indignation, on the other hand, I'm like, you could've just asked. Especially seeing everything that you've been through the last few months. And it's also striking me as interesting that Daniel just freely, without any scruples, seems to share the most traumatic, intimate details about O'Neill's life with Carter. If they hadn't talked about it after many days and probably months spent together exploring the galaxy, maybe not so freely share other people's life-changing traumatic events, but okay. I'm of two minds about this, because on the one hand, it's not like it's a secret. On the other hand, he's so casually, flippantly just throws it out there, it does something to me. I can't even put my finger on it. I wonder how y'all view that. This show really deserves props for continuity because these are two distinct conversations. One is before in the locker room where Carter is yet to take her shower as apparently all the men had the shower before the briefing. Mm, okay. So much for ladies first. She continues the conversation on the way to the lab with Daniel of finding out that Colonel O'Neill basically had a life outside, though technically before the Stargate Command. After her shower where she seems refreshed and now wearing a coverall. For a second there, I thought they fucked up, but when I rewind and watch it again, I'm like, no, no, they did it wrong. You see her in a different outfit, so she evidently had her shower, though it was off screen. But still, the continuity of that? Mwah. Beautiful. Respect. On his way out, O'Neill runs into Tilk, who asks him to live up to his earlier promise to show him Earth. Apparently, he hasn't yet lived up to that. I mean, how many months has it been, people? Poor Tilk, being stuck at the SGC all this time. O'Neill brushes him off and says another time. Here, I took the liberty of interpreting Tilk's facial expression as, well, that's odd or that's uncharacteristic O'Neill-like behavior. But, I mean, the dude's got such a stoic face. For all I know, it's indigestion. Who knows? Scotter and Daniel enter the lab. They discovered that a few of the shattered crystals emit a low level of electromagnetic energy, and Carter theorizes that the crystals were destroyed by staff weapon blasts. Jesse Other O'Neill goes to visit the house that we saw in the picture, the house where he used to live with his family. We find out what it is he's trying to do, as he says, I need to find Charlie, is he here? His now ex-wife obviously doesn't take it very well that he's conveniently seems to have forgotten that they lost their son. She ends up becoming so upset that she goes back into the house. But her father still invites O'Neill in. What I also can appreciate is that he is still her father and he discloses to O'Neill that she is not over him yet and warns him not to hurt her or else, as a true daddy should. 
So just a few minutes ago, in this episode, I praised them for their continuity. This scene also took quite some liberties compared to, okay, granted, the movie. This time around, we see that there's a lot of space-themed decoration in Charlie's room. The very keen-eyed fan discovered that the Lego set, Shark's Crystal Cave, that's featured in Charlie's room, wasn't released until a year after Tyler, Charlie, supposed death. So that's a little less continuity for you there. But technically, it wasn't in the show and it was compared to the movie. We basically just borrow characters off of that and the gate concept-ish thingamajig. We can forgive them for that little snafu, right? And I mean, of course, in the movie, he was named Tyler, for one. But I don't remember seeing all that much space in his room that time around. But they clearly tried to proclaim his interest in space. Although, at that time, O'Neill had nothing to do with space. The Stargate, what happened after Charlie died. But it's a nice touch, I get it. Another prime example why I truly love this show is how they handle it. As we are looking at alien entity came through the gate and got out into the outside world of the Stargate command complex, could do god only knows what, seeing that they from a crystal can duplicate a whole fucking person. Still knowing that, having that play in the back of your head, they beautifully take this moment to address grief, particularly grieving your child, the many ways in which you can do that, and here the other O'Neill, for instance, asks what should I do, seeing that he now realizes that Charlie really is dead and gone, and former father-in-law tells him that his daughter, Sarah, Charlie's mother, sometimes comes and sit in his room and talks to him. Maybe that could help O'Neill as well, and if that turns out to be the case, he's very grateful that O'Neill came over, especially since the loss of their child resulted in them ending their marriage. We truly love the writers and creators of this television series because they allowed for this moment to happen where his former father-in-law commends him for honoring his needs while dealing with the grief of losing his son. He commends him for coming there knowing no doubt how awkward or difficult that must have been for supposedly O'Neill and say that I'm grateful that if this is what you need that you made the step to actually come here and try and fulfill that need. I really love that they so beautifully, so casually just slip that in there. That really truly makes me love this show, respect this show and make me use my podcast to sing their praises. <laughs> His former father-in-law also takes this moment to actually verbalize parents shouldn't outlive their children. It isn't natural. It really isn't, to the point that we don't even have a word for it. That it quote an ER of when your parents are gone, you're an orphan. When a spouse dies, you're a widow or a widower. But when you lose your baby, there's no word for that. I remember when she phrased it like that, it really kind of felt like a light bulb moment. As in, there really is no word for that. Like, objectively, to this day, we have failed to find a word to describe that. As far as I'm aware, I think that in of itself says a lot. Quite unlike the wackadoodles in my country, I mean here, unfortunately, we have gotten to the point where they even decided on a word for touching stuff with your dick. I shit you not. I really wish I was, but no. Apparently we did find a word for that one. Therefore I like to interpret that as losing your child really truly is an unspeakable kind of suffering that just no word in any language could do it enough justice. Though I gotta add, touching stuff with your naked limpy dick, in my opinion, could also have gone without being assigned a word. And thus making it an actual thing. Because it's just don't. Please, don't.
speaking of images inducing trauma, next we see Tilk in his, I assume his room. As he turns on the TV, he appears to drop him in the middle of a news report on a riot. And then he changes his channel to the Wall Street crazies on the trading floor, changes the channel to not all that great of a rock band, and he appears to, shall we say, find it all unpleasant. I'm with you there. Lineup is Carter and Daniel come running up to his room. Tilk says, your world is a strange place, making Daniel feel the need to respond, saying, so is yours. Which I kind of find funny that he somehow feels the need to defend Earth, while also delightfully point out that it's all relative. I mean, it's all in the eye of the beholder, though in this case, I think one can objectively agree on the fact that, yeah, both of our worlds are whack. At least some bits. Carter explains that she needs to borrow his staff weapon, and I do kind of think it's nice that they go to him and ask him for permission to use his weapon, instead of just appropriating it as, you know, we colonials tend to do. It's a clear sign that they respect him. To continue on traumatizing images and moments, in this episode, they took the time to respectfully, though not in any way, shape, or form less haunting, the moment of Charlie's accident. You see O'Neill being welcomed home by his wife, and then you hear the gunshot and their initial response. That moment in the episode always still gets me. And to think that this was 26 years ago. This was before so many traumatizing mass shootings, shootings involving kids, to me, this episode, even back then, already made such an impact that I am just stunned, horrified, shocked. There are just not enough work involving gun control, gun laws, just sometimes people's general attitude towards guns, especially seeing how wackadoodle it's gotten in America. Like, I think it was a little over two or three years ago, and someone on social media wrote, I always wanted to go to the United States, but now I'm not so sure anymore. And that made me realize, yeah, me too. When I was younger, I thought that all the awesome things on the planet came from the United States. Art, music, TV shows, movies, and I hoped one day emigrate to the United States, but lord have mercy. Even now going on holiday there kind of frightens me because there's just nothing you can do. Every single place that you visit, someone could be carrying a gun. Someone could be just seconds away from using that gun. And with my disability, I don't run that fast. So the whole duck and cover and all that jazz is limited, shall we say. <laughs> so yeah, I never thought that I'd actually get to that point where it would scare me where i would really love to visit the country because of all the beautiful places and people but yeah it has shifted my perspective quite a bit sadly enough makes you think or at least it makes me think obviously evidently and yes i know it's not just in the united states thing criminals in my country are just living it up wow wow west style and our cops are not taken seriously and corrupt for instance i was witness to a break-in we called the police they didn't show up for well over an hour we waited and then after we left apparently they came back and ripped apart that entire apartment. I had to come and give my statement well over a year later. By that time, I hardly remembered crap. Plus, when they attempted to steal my motorbike adjusted to my needs, I had to file a report. And then a month later, they came back with the necessary tools to actually steal my vehicle. And then the police decided still not to come. They again just made me fill out a report and basically just told me, well, that puppy is very popular, especially in the Eastern European countries. So that thing has long since left the country. And thank God, by that time i had just like it hadn't been a month got my license and bought a car i wouldn't have been able to get around at all and they truly did not seem to give a flying fart that they stole a mode of transportation vital for me to get around mainly for short distances but more importantly i used it on campus it's, our campus was not accessible for cars and we had to move around a lot to get from class to class so i used my motorbike to get around and they stole it had i not had my 
car, I would have been without any means of transportation and thus would have, in essence, been quarantined to my home, which unfortunately that little nightmare came true during the pandemic, though a little more for some of us than others. All I can say now is back then, thank fuck, I insisted on getting my license as soon as I was able, even though at the time, absolutely no one, my family even remotely felt that that was necessary, only now actually making me realize, of course, because this way they kept me dependent on them and thus trapped. But thankfully, at that point in time, I was quite determined. As soon as I was able to get driving lessons, I got my license and friends of ours owned a garage and they helped me buy my first car. To finish that all off with the event that truly sealed the deal on how I see our popo. When there was a guy with a gun outside my front door, luckily I spotted it through the glass before I opened the door. The only thing police really did was race up and down our street a few times, and though I was nearly at that time quite in shock and slightly traumatized, I told her what kind of gun it was. As of up until that time I was an CSI watcher, I could identify the type of gun it was, though incidentally after this incident, I for a while could not watch shows like that anymore because I I had come very close to having a gun pointed at my head, quite traumatizing, and then proceeded to ask me, is this maybe a friend of yours trying to punk you? And despite my shock, I was still able to respond with, no, I don't know what kind of friends you have, but my friends know not to do that. So yeah, I don't really respect our police either. And the justice system is broken to work not for us minorities. So yeah, my faith in our judicial system is a little, shall we say, limited. Though I still truly believe in justice and righteousness and morality and all that jazz. And I will, to my last day, try and fight make this world a better place for all of us. But despite all of that, I still have doubts visiting America. Well, not doubts. You know, if I ever get the chance, I will go, of course, because that is a bucket list item for sure. But so are plenty of other places on the planet. But I mean, Hawaii is a place that you just got to visit when you have the chance, right? It's still definitely on my wish list, but it did make me realize that my perspective has changed. I would not want to live there. I would prefer to stay here, which is saying something, than move there. I would much rather, for instance, move to New Zealand. If I could, fuck yeah, I would. Scandinavia, apparently they have the happiest people on the planet. Yes, please. A little cold. I don't do well with cold, but willing to adapt. is what I think we could call the classic brain fart train derailment. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, let's get back to the episode. Together, O'Neill and Sarah, they talk about Charlie. You see that him showing his emotions and starting to talk about it is opening her door to him again, but he just responds by saying that he needs to go back to the Stargate. Of course, she has no fucking clue what a Stargate is, and she clearly gets annoyed and thinks he is bullshitting her again. I actually really like that moment where she asks him where his O'Neill military bravado is, and he responds with, I don't have it. This other O'Neill just doesn't seem to have the bluster of our O'Neills. Despite us knowing that this is the other O'Neill and not actually Colonel Jack O'Neill, I do love that in this scene they show how healing and beautiful it is when you start opening up without inhibitions, without reservations, and start talking to each other. So again, we are witnessing the magic of Stargate SG-1, where they cover a topic that is quite serious and quite moving in such a beautiful, respectful manner, while also allowing room for a little lightheartedness. 
it's Target Command, we see that Tilk, Daniel, and Carter are in the gate room, and they let Tilk blast the crystal with his staff weapon, and an alarm starts to go off. People get all in a tizzy, making Tilk realize suddenly that perhaps Daniel and Carter hadn't asked permission for him to use his weapon in the gate room, and though they clearly lie to him, saying that, oh yeah, we asked. Thankfully, no one seems to get in trouble over this, which, again, makes for just that little break in all the seriousness that I just love. Carter explains to Tilk that she recognized the blast impact from when Apophis and his serpent guards shot up the gate room. The way that they go about this, this strikes me as odd. Because, yeah, he was there. Unlike you two. They even go as far saying that since your weapon is the same as the weapons Apophis' the serpent guards used. Again, he was there! He was Apophis' first prime. I mean, what is happening here? Are we forgetting how y'all met? Who Tilk was? What he did as Apophis' first prime? He kidnapped the airman. He took Sharae. Just for a second here, it felt like we were completely forgetting the fact that Tilk was there, was Apophis' first prime, and that that is the reason that he has a staff weapon. Like, the entire scene, I was waiting for them to acknowledge that fact, but no. In conclusion, as a shock to none, yes, Carter's theory gets confirmed. The Goa'ulds destroyed the crystals. Offhand, Carter also makes a remark that she would love to run the crystal through the spectrometer at Stanford, reminding us again that Tilk is not from Earth by asking what is a Stanford? Which I have to admit still kind of gets a chuckle out of me every single time. Yes, I'm that easy. As Daniel and Carter get their faces to pop up out of the crystals, this is the first time that we hear her say, Holy Hannah. I love that exclamation. It's like an all ages swear word. And I love to get creative with my swear words. Although nothing is better than the all encompassing fuck. That word can genuinely be used for every single motion on the entire spectrum. Very, very good. To very, very bad and very painful. <laughs> As this is all happening, suddenly there's an incoming wormhole, which apparently necessitates the gate spinning. Okay. Plus, before the gate connects, or you see the light of the connecting wormhole, they have seemingly already received the iris code because they remark on the fact that it isn't closing and... Wow, that thing must have wicked range if it can come in before the wormhole actually connects. But those, those little insynchronicities, is that a word? That were still happening on occasion in those early days before we really nailed down the whole physics of it all. Anywho, the visitor knocking at our front door is none other than our original O'Neill. He yells at them, what are you guys doing leaving without me? And Hammond responds with, who are you? From our perspective, it's like, who the fuck are you? We already have our O'Neill. So he's taken into custody. Where next we see that the team and the general are watching him on a monitor where he gets up on a chair yelling at the camera come on get me out of here let me put it nicely get me the hell out of here making both carter and daniel and even general hammond crack a little smile i do believe saying if that isn't o'neill i want to know who the hell we're looking at because yeah he sounds an awful lot like o'neill other o'neill meanwhile is in the park with sarah where we continue on how a married couple can deal with the grief of losing their child she invites him to talk to her and he explains that he he left because she was angry when Charlie died. So accurate, I can fully understand why that pisses her off. Saying, you're trying to tell me it was my fault? And she rightfully points out he could have talked to her about it. Should have, in my opinion. And that clearly shows where their marriage fell apart was because they didn't talk to each other about what they were going through. A lot of feelings, a lot of resentment was felt but wasn't shared. And yeah, that'll break up your marriage fast. Even though this is a, a weird situation and you have to 
keep reminding yourself this isn't the real O'Neill. The fact that he is so uninhibited and without reservations and just answers truthfully creates these beautiful moments where finally stuff is getting talked about. And thus they, or in this case for now, she gets to heal a little more because she clearly left him because he just wouldn't talk to her or talk with her about what happened. What I've seen and learned is how important it is. Find a way or find someone that can help you acknowledge that there's something to talk about no matter how hard it is and either with the help of a therapist or someone who's more removed from the entire situation. Even and maybe especially at this moment in time you are unable to talk about it with them or with anyone in particular. Just the simple acknowledgement that there is something to work on, to talk about, to process, is showing that you're trying. That oftentimes is what the person actually wants acknowledged. Even and maybe especially if you're unable to share your feelings with that person for whatever reason, by acknowledging that there's something to heal from can already be a very helpful step in the healing process. Because even if you're unable to give words to all that you're feeling, it shows the person that there is something worth fighting for. Oftentimes that is the acknowledgement that people seek. And yeah, it can hurt if your partner is unable to talk to you about your shared loss, but seeing that they process it at least somehow, some way that works for them is better than not talking about it at all and just bottle up all the anger and resentment until it blows up either in your face, in their face, in all y'all's faces, in your entire family's face. So yeah, please, if you have anything in your life that's difficult to process, allow yourself to find a way to deal with that and as much as you can, try to translate that to the outside world as I'm working on it to make it easier for others to be kept at a distance but still feel seen acknowledged in that they have a part in it too someone who was gaslit a lot that was oftentimes the shittiest part feeling alone in what i was feeling feeling unjustified in what i was feeling that really does a number on you it does a number on your psyche and just adds to the pile that needs to be dealt with i recommend just find a way to let the emotions flow instead of just bottling it up try anything and everything to try and save your relationship trying to save your marriage because if you don't properly heal from whatever happened even if you do decide to break up you carry that around with you and if you don't heal that either with or without your partner you are gonna bring it into your next relationships so again i commend them for writing this scene for the performance of the actors both richard dean anderson as both himself the original o'neill and the other o'neill because every second that he is on camera as the other o'neill you see be it through his body language his facial expressions you clearly see that he is another great acting and also credits to harley jane kozak the woman who plays sarah o'neill she beautifully performs the scene where she tells him yes she was angry and what did you expect it happened in their house with his gun and she continues on saying that i know you blamed yourself but if you'd only opened up for once and let me through that armor of yours we could have helped each other i needed you and i love that in this moment they showed her shock that he just out of the blue acknowledged that all of a sudden after supposedly previously being completely unable to talk about it in any way shape or form thus acknowledging that he too had a part in it and that he was aware of that but he now acknowledges that and verbalizes it i can understand is shocking for a man that previously had no such inclination even though isn't it in the vow, sorta? 
you know, for better or worse. Am I the only one that interprets that as in we're going to try to make it work at least, you know, talk about it extensively first? That is how I interpreted those vows, but hey, could just be me. He then tries again to explain why he came today and that he was trying to bring Charlie back through the Stargate, which, ow, pisses her off because she still doesn't know what a Stargate is. And while she is ranting after that beautiful moment, he suddenly gets up, collapses in pain, and is surrounded by electrical surges. So yeah, she takes him to the hospital because that is not okay. Meanwhile, the SGC are our one and only. Colonel O'Neill is put through the ringer by Dr. Fraser with an MRI test, DNA screening, and, and damn, those results came back fast. And other than some physical trauma upon exam, I wonder what kind of trauma, but okay. She confirms he is a real boy. And it's only now that he apparently learns that there was an imposter roaming around. Carter even has to show him the video of them all arriving earlier through the gate from the planet to prove, like, we didn't leave you. They then go and talk to the crystal and ask it to basically come out and play. It explains that she must return to the planet or her energy will disintegrate. The Go'uld came to visit and back then they weren't afraid of them so they tried to greet them. Upon touching one of them, the Go'uld got destroyed and as retaliation, the Go'uld gathered all the crystals together and destroyed them, making Daniel now realize that it wasn't as much of a ceremonial pit that they discovered but a mass grave. Huh. And then a prime example of context and perspective being quite relevant to the interpretation of a story. As I learned for sure that the other O'Neill is nowhere to be found in the mountain, Carter tells him that the energy in the crystal is starting to decay, releasing ionized particle radiation. And I looked this up. When ionizing radiation interacts with cells, it can cause damage to the cells and your genetic material, aka your DNA. If not properly repaired, this damage can result in the death of the cell or potentially harmful changes in the DNA, meaning mutations. So yeah, not good overall. You know, we're not X-Men. Not yet, as far as I know. Ooh, if only. As she explained, the more that the other O'Neill starts to decay, anyone nearby could get a lethal dose. As they now try to figure out where it could have gone, seeing that it left the mountain, Carter suddenly shares that she saw it going through O'Neill's personal stuff. O'Neill immediately tries to phone Sarah, but of course there's no answer. Shortly thereafter, as SG-1 prepares to go out after it, Hammond discloses that less than an hour ago, a J. O'Neill was admitted to the hospital. Tilk is carrying his staff weapon, but Hammond says he can't take it with them, making Tilk respond, I have seen your world, I will need it, and god, this is why I love this show so much. This bit always makes me laugh, because yeah, after what he just saw on their television, mm-hmm. But note he is to relinquish his weapon, and they are reminded they are prohibited to disclose the existence of the Stargate or Stargate Command. Hammond therefore gives Tilk a Chicago baseball cap for his, you know, emblem on his forehead. And this, gotta love him, Tilk say, Chicago, the Windy City, home of the Blackhawks, the Bulls, the White Sox. The fact that he did research, <laughs> I love it. And despite the tension and concern that he has for his ex-wife, O'Neill can't help but add, don't forget the Cubs. I love this, truly. In the ER, the other O'Neill wakes up. Apparently, this was the same ER they brought their son to after his accident and where he died. Okay. And he starts to electrify the entire ER, making lights pop all over the place and people start running away in a panic. As Sarah is still inside getting treatment for the burn on her hand, she suddenly sees the real O'Neill authoritatively come running in, ordering people out. She seems, rightfully so, freaked out and looks behind her where there's the light show going on caused by the other O'Neill, but it quickly reassures her that he's the real deal. O'Neill until grabs some radiation 
radiation masks and enter the ER, where now they find the other O'Neill convulsing on the floor as Carter and Daniel come running up with a Geiger counter. After another energy spike, the radiation appears to drop for a bit, thus allowing the team to take off their masks, because that just, you know, talks a little easier with all the cameras and whatnot. Making clear that no one wants to harm anyone, O'Neill asks him, why did you come here? The other O'Neill explains he tried to heal his injury back on the planet, but he didn't understand it. Looking into his mind for the answer, he found the mind of a warrior and was afraid. He tried to fix his mistake before the others discovered him, but he discovered that O'Neill's deepest pain wasn't the physical injury that he'd caused, but came from an empty place in his heart where Charlie once was. He thought that if he could bring Charlie to him on the planet, it would heal him. Apparently not understanding that death in our world, on our planet, our physical death is different from theirs. As O'Neill says, Charlie is gone, the other O'Neill responds, no, he is in here, and reaches out to touch Jack's heart, and as you see his hand move beautifully, he morphs into Charlie, explaining, you cannot change what happened that day, just as I cannot change the day that the Go'ul destroyed my world. I'm showing you what of Charlie is still here, inside of you. Oh, people, the feels! Lord have mercy. If you've lost anyone even remotely important to you, yeah, that's just oof. They explain that they have to go, and asks, is Sarah O'Neill still here? Hand in hand, Jack and the, now Charlie, go and see her. She, of course, is again beyond freaked out, when now it's Charlie and Jack walking out. Carter and the team give them moments saying the chopper is inbound. Do we really want an electrical surging entity on a chopper? But, you know, it's the fastest mode of transportation, I guess. Okay. Zack tries to delicately remind her that this isn't Charlie, but he gives her a moment to say goodbye to their son, which is beautifully done, beautifully acted. Clearly see that she is just, I mean, just put yourself in her shoes for a second, just damn. And then you see her reel it back in as Jack tells her that they have to go. She says to the Stargate, whatever that is. After that, she breaks down, and Jack holds her, pretty much confesses that he can imagine what the other guy said to her, and they both acknowledge that as a couple, they were great together, but you can also clearly tell that this is their goodbye, and not a rekindling. As Jack and Charlie walk away, she softly says, take care of yourself, Jack. So you clearly know that this was truly a healing journey for both of them, and now this is goodbye, which is actually quite smart to, so early on in this series, allow this dramatic life-altering event that changed Colonel Jack O'Neill to the core and still allow it to find a place of healing and thus opening up, well, I mean, 10 seasons of awesomeness for us to explore extensively. Back at Stargate Command, Colonel Jack O'Neill takes the boy back to the planet alone, saying, keep the lights on, I'll be back. And just, that is a beautiful ending to a beautiful episode. An episode where, again, they just hit you right in the feels, but still knew also how to mix in tastefully some comedic moments where still after seeing this, though you removed by several scenes, I don't feel heavy-hearted and I want to watch the next episode, which I know for a fact is an awesome, awesome one. So yeah, again, like I cannot say enough how much I love this TV show. And even though it is 26 years old, this is one of the very, very few TV shows, things in general that has actually aged well. Got taste, y'all. Let's wrap it up and get ready for our next episode called The Nars. I do hope to see you there.